0: Harper Academic Calling, Jennifer London On this episode of Harper Academic Calling, we talk with Jennifer London, who goes by London, about her book, American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The Nineteenth-Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. A silent spring for the human body, this wide-ranging, genre-crossing, mystery interweaves London's quest to understand the source of her own condition alongside the story of the chronically ill 19th century diarist Alice James, ultimately uncovering the many hidden health hazards of life in America. Although science and the politics behind its funding has in many ways let London and the millions like her down, in the end, science offers a revelation that will change how readers think about the ecosystems of their bodies, their communities, the country, and the planet. London and I talk through the various themes of her book and her research and writing process, as well as the joys of the form of the lyric essay, and about how American Breakdown stretches well across disciplines. American Breakdown is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Harper Books. So, today on the podcast, We have London, the author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. London, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Kim. I'm really glad to be here and talk about the book.
0: One of the things I think to start us off is to just give our listeners a sense of what your book, American Breakdown, is about. So, If you had to give us a quick elevator pitch of the overall scope of the narrative, what would that be?
1: well the one that i came up with a long time ago um so it's right there in my brain is that it um well the title now gives the subtitle now gives away quite a, quite a lot american breakdown our ailing nation my body's revolt and the 19th century woman who brought me back to life and it um it's an interwoven narrative that blends in my memoir biography of alice james who we'll talk about more in a second and then a whole lot of research um, from the 19th century when Alice James was alive to now that um, in particularly history and science to um, explore the health hazards of industrial capitalism.
0: Great. So one of the things that um, really interested me about your book is that you Structure of the narrative is very much nonlinear, right? um, You have your personal story. You have the story of Alice James, whose last name might be familiar to the Americanists, uh, among our listeners. First of all, why did you choose to structure the narrative in such a nonlinear way? And what made you drawn to Alice James in particular?
1: Okay, I'm gonna start with the Alice James part, because that was the seed of everything. So in um ni- nine nineteen ninety four, I discovered the biography of Alice James by James by Jean Strauss on a bookshelf in a used bookstore, and I knew that she had suffered from a mysterious fatigue. And at that point, I had been sick with, uh, what we now call myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, or ME CFS for five years, and so I felt like. I knew that we had something in common, so I decided to buy the book. And when I read it, I felt like I'd found my soul sister. And it really, when you have a chronic illness, especially one that's dismissed by uh, mainstream medicine, the way that uh, ME-CFS was at the time and still is to a certain degree, um, it's really lonely. And to have found my soul sister in this 19th century woman, I mean, I who would have guessed, but she had, she had she had this mysterious fatigue that was at the time was called neurasthenia. Um, she had this, she's just, she's just so smart and had this edgy wit that I just loved. In fact, I, I, um, I printed out like all her quotes so that I can like, pull some out when I need to, when I'm talking to people. And here's one that she said when she was very sick to a, in a letter to a friend, she said, ill health, though not an exceptional or tragic fate, inevitably brings a certain monotony into the lives of its victims which makes them rather skeptical of the much talked of and apparently much believed in joy of mere existence (laughs) she still makes me laugh i mean how many times have i read that quote in the years it's taken me to write the book and she's so funny and edgy so anyway I had company and I got really curious about whether my her illness and mine might possibly be the same thing. And so that sort of launched the research, um, not right away because I was uh, finishing my degree in English and then doing a master's in social work. But um, in the last year of my master's program, I started researching um, whether anybody else had made any uh, connections between MECFS and Neurasthenia, and just a handful at that time had but by the time it took me like 20 years to get the book written so now more people many more people are making those connections so that's that's why Alice is in the book because she was the spark that started it all and um and then my research into her world and trying to understand the context of my own illness and I didn't realize this at the time but my training as a social worker became an undergirding that I wasn't even conscious of to look not just at the personal, but to look at the um, social and political context. Um, and the, the, reason, the reason I interwove it is because I felt like I can't just nail people with all this data without giving them a break. And I can't just nail people with all this Misery, which my experience of MECFS and multiple chemical sensitivity, which they often go hand in hand, was so. I need to give people a break from each thing, Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I love doing interwoven narratives because of that, and also in a way, it's a way to connect the head and the heart. So, data is like the head. Uh, memoir is the heart that's what Mm -hmm. helps people identify with a human and hear hearing the human story like i wasn't planning for it to get as complex as it did i had no (laughs) idea how inter how many threads and how interwoven they would all turn out to be and then that was the only form that i could create out of it
0: the research element was really interesting to me um and i assume will be uh, really interesting to a lot of our Listeners, um, because we're always grateful for an extensive notes section in, in the back of a in the back of a book, uh, and I'm sure your training as a social worker sort of helped, kind of organize the research component of the project, but also in terms of sort of how you sifted through, you know, your own source material and and things like that. So, how did you go about doing the research for American Breakdown, and was there anything during your research process that you found? particularly surprising or enraging or that kind of caught you out in a way that you weren't expecting?
1: Right. And so the beginning, I spent about six years at the beginning, just researching. Um, and mostly I was just researching these two illnesses and uh, what was going on in the 19th century to try to see if I could make that connection with what's happening now. And um, for the first six years. And until I felt like I had a sense of expertise that gave me the confidence to begin writing. And then I kept writing to the very, uh researching to the very end. I mean, I I had some things that I knew I wanted to research and put in, but a lot of things I, I learned so many, I mean, research is so fun. Um, It's hugely time consuming, which is why the book took me so long to write, but it's, it's just so intoxicating and you can just go deeper and deeper. And I wanted to get to the source. Like, I don't want to just skim along the surface. I want to understand what's like underneath it all, which is how I ended up coming to like this revelation that, Oh, all this stuff is related to industrial capitalism. Um, and uh, yes. So you asked if there was anything that was particularly surprising or enraging. And like the first thing, and um in the book i'm sort of one of the things i do is write about my own journey to to understand what was happening to alice and me and um i have this friend jennifer tuttle she is a professor at the university of england of new england um, and she has an expertise in uh, 19th century women's health and uh we became friends and she was the one who handed me this tiny little article about arsenic in the wallpapers in the 19th century and i was like what like who knew and that i just became impassioned and i was looking for every single thing of like primary sources and um research from that time and you know controversy not everybody um believed that it was what was causing people to be ill um and um it's just fascinating I mean arsenic was everywhere in the 19th century it was in candy it was in candles it was in playing cards and the paper that lined um bakery shelves and it was in the wallpaper and it created a gas that um to me very clearly made people sick and it even caused some deaths so that part was fascinating to me um and then uh there were so many times in my research when my jaw just dropped, I, I couldn't believe it. But one jaw-dropping thing was finding out that in the um, late 1980s, which is right around the time that I fell ill with a case of mono that turned into MECFS, cfs um, there was a case of sick building syndrome within the building that housed the Environmental Protection Agency. So the very people who were tasked with making sure that we Americans would be safe were unsafe in their own building. And if that weren't bad enough, they were telling the administration that they were sick and that it was the building that was making them sick, and the administration was denying it. That the doctor who was working with those people at the time, who was um, in the same building, um, well, I don't know for sure if he's in the same building, but i I think he was employed by the EPA, if not a contractor to the EPA. He got so discouraged that they were not listening to him that he quit the job. Ultimately, those people had to like bring their unions in and fight really hard and take it to court. And um, I just think if scientists and lawyers who know the science of uh, toxicants still have that much trouble getting their administration to keep them safe. What does that say about how much how much the government is keeping the rest of us safe? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's definitely a, a jaw-dropping moment for, for sure, among many, I'm sure. <laughs> um, one of the, part of the answer that you gave um, leads me really nicely, I think, into the next um, question that I have for you, because one of the things that I thought was, um really interesting about american breakdown was how much you talked about the effects of capitalism on health um and also the idea of healthcare and sort of how the the sort of particularly american idea of healthcare um which for the listener who can't see this zoom call right now i put healthcare in in scare quotes um <laughs> which you- maybe i shouldn't have but i did so it talks you talk a lot about capitalism and um what capitalism has done to health and and what we think and what we come to understand as health both in terms of kind of just going about our way in the world but also how uh sort of our 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 bodies and and systems are are seen um in in within a capitalist society so why is it important to think about capitalism when we think about health um, and health care and how capitalism can influence both of those things?
1: My book is made up of five parts. Like I thought I was writing chapters, but I was, and they were very, very long chapters, but they turned out there were parts that I could divide into smaller chapters. That's why writing one chapter took so long. Um, so it's five parts. In the beginning, the first part sort of really just explores Alice's. Um, illness experience and culture and mind and the last part sort of ties everything together but the middle three one is about stress in America like we have a particularly unique stress uh full uniquely stressful way of life um one is about the chemicals in the environment which we just talked a little bit about and um how we're not I mean the government is so in the pockets of corporations that we I we aren't getting protected to the degree that um we need to be um and then the the um, other one is about um our healthcare system so let me just say a little bit about stress first of all which is that our particularly rapacious form of industrial capitalism that isn't really balanced um by with checks and balances the way other countries are um, makes it so that we're all, um, running, 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 trying to keep up because, um, we are the, um, the economic value of our work, like the amount that we're getting paid and how, what it actually pays for in society has gone down and down and down since 1973, particularly, or, and the wealth gap has divided since that time. And, um, that wealth gap is bad for certainly bad for people on the lower end of the scale, because I mean, they don't, they might not have health insurance. um, They might have to work three jobs and there's, there are all kinds of health effects of ongoing long-term stress that most of us are under, particularly people who are low, lower income. Um, And, but it also turns out that um, when, that the countries that have a, the uh, a narrower gap between rich and poor even the wealthy are healthier um so there's that piece about stress and then there's a piece about like what what is industrial capitalism doing to our healthcare maybe one of the biggest things the one that comes right to my forefront is just thinking about the um the effects of um the changes in our health insurance system since i first got sick in 89 that's when hmos really started taking off and doctors get, if they're lucky, 15 minutes with a patient. Um, it's impossible to tr- to adequately treat a complex uh, multi-system illness like ME-CFS, um, not to mention long COVID and many other illnesses in a 15-minute appointment. Um, and, oh, I feel like there's like, it's like capitalism is in, it's like the water we swim in. And if we aren't able to step back and see, then we can't understand the context within which we're being made ill and not getting the health care that we need. So maybe that's, I feel like I could go on forever, but. It's <laughs> a good, it's there. a good, it's a good taster. It's a good taster.
0: <laughs> um, And something else that you talk about, and you, you touched on both of these, um, as well, a little bit, but let's think a bit more about um, sort of the environmental justice and economic justice, because those those two things are also part of um, a lot of what American Breakdown talks about. Why are these two issues for you central to sort of how we can make ourselves healthier people and also just sort of a healthier society overall?
1: Right. So they're both both environmental justice and economic justice are intrinsically intertwined with health justice. And what we do to our environments, both outside and lesser known, but inside where actually the air is far more toxic than even the most polluted air outside because of the things that we bring into our homes, most of the time, not knowing that the government is not protecting us from, thing, from, uh, from uh, chemicals that can cause, that are carcinogenic or um, can cause neurological uh, problems. So both indoor and outdoor environments are so important to our health. And as I said, like the, the connection between our economic system that's creating so much stress for us Um, And how it's affecting our health um, are so important. And I think there's this amazing quote that I quoted towards the end of my book. David Corton, and he's the author of Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. And he connects the um, human body with the environment that we all live in, like the planet Earth. Right with that ecosystem, like they're, and I do throughout the book, like the body is an ecosystem and the planet is an ecosystem. And um, one thing that I loved was he was talking about things on a cellular level. And he said, We have, tr- he says that um, we have trillions of cells inside us. All of these individual decision making cells come together in this extraordinary cooperative enterprise that has potential far beyond that of any one cell. For the body to work, each cell needs to maintain its integrity as an independent being, yet be devoted to the health of the whole. So it's constantly balancing the individual interest with the collective interest, end quote. And I just loved that as like sort of a summary of some of what I'm saying in the book um, about the importance of, Uh, us not competition has value of course but we undervalue the importance of connection empathy and um and togetherness here in the u.s
0: yeah and and it's it's a really striking thing to kind of to kind of think about too thinking about all of the different kinds of narrative that exists in your book from the story, you know, the historical story that you're telling of Alice James, um, who, you know, may or may not have just been considered, you know, some dude's sister, right? You know, in, 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 other, in other narratives. And for the listener, I guess if you don't know, Alice James is the is the sister of Henry James, which may be why um that name rings the bell. But yeah, so he, she, I mean she could have just been some dude's sister. But between between her story, between your story, um, between the story of the, the research that you're collecting uh and collating and sharing and, and applying to, to both of these cases, I can imagine a lot of different kinds of audience for your book in an academic setting so for like for, for the doctors who are teaching expi- uh, aspiring doctors for um the social work faculty who are teaching you know future social workers or for you know the, the creative writing folks who are teaching uh memoir writing what do you hope each of these different groups can take away from your book
1: well um first let me say that it's my dream To get into med schools and talk with med students um because they still don't get adequate training in these complex multi-system illnesses like me cfs long covid and multiple chemical sensitivity chronic lyme all those things and um and I, i um and i would love to do it even like like with a with a doctor and have a conversation and understand like we come from different cultures, doctors and social workers, we have different ways of perceiving the world. But one thing that I learned and that I think is really important when I was researching this book is that um, if we look to science to have all the answers, then we're treating it like a religion. Science will never have all the answers. And we actually know that from the science of chaos theory. And so science is really important Thank God for science, right? We need science um, and we need more than science because um, our bodies are complex systems and the sum of our parts are, uh, the sum of our whole is not as great as our parts. Or I can't remember how that goes, but our parts just don't make it. Like we're whole people that are more than our parts and we need to be um, viewed as whole people by doctors, which is hard to do in this, capitalist culture where there's such time constraints, but it's also very hard to do within the training structures that they have and, um, and within the ways that they're treated when they're residents, um, which sometimes includes a lot of bullying and being told not to have feelings. uh, When in fact, empathy helps doctors create connection, helps them um, get the bigger story, which can help actually help them diagnostically and can certainly help them their hearts so that they don't burn out as fast which is the opposite of what they're taught in school but there's research in my book that that explains why that's the case that was the doctor part
0: So, so social workers and social workers and creative writing faculty who teach memoir
1: right so the social worker so i am a social worker and um what i learned and I didn't realize until I was teaching, there's a specific core course that social workers have to take called Human Behavior in the Social Environment. And that course was one of the first I took and it blew my mind. There are some scenes from it in the book. and um, But it wasn't until I was teaching that course to graduate level social works, workers that I realized that how social worky my book is. Because of this way, um, social workers are trained to look at the big picture, at the contexts. And that's what this book does in a big way. And so I would love to see social workers studying this book, not just, um, I mean, it's certainly a great book in the context of um, understanding how to work with people with illness and disability. And by the way, uh, if I remember correctly, I think 25% of Americans are disabled. So it's a much broader expanse than many people are aware of. But also... I think the stuff in the book about the culture of capitalism—that's for everybody. We all need to know that. And just because you're not sick now doesn't mean you're not going to get sick down the road. And if you would like to try to do what you can to stay as healthy as possible, there are things you you, you need to know. And then the creative writing—I just my favorite my favorite form when I um let's see yeah my favorite form uh, when I discovered it is called the lyric essay and lyric essays tend to have they're hard to define they tend to have a lot of white space I think they often tend to be interwoven but it's not a requirement and I just find them really exciting because they're a way um they're a way to sort of connect the like different kinds of stories into one so I love that form and then I ended up writing a whole book in that form
0: um so I just have one more question for you and it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast since uh we are primarily talking to an audience um of teachers um who was your favorite teacher
1: oh thank you for asking for those who can't see my hand just went up to my oops not my heart it's the wrong side (laughs) (laughs) I had amazing, I had many amazing English teachers when I was in high school. And I, before I even name the one who had the biggest influence on me, I just want to say the importance of teachers, all teachers. I love teachers. And I, you know, when you're a writer, you have to, I don't think you can be a writer without having a certain level of resilience and confidence in your own work. And if, and the way you get that is by having people encourage you, um, uh particularly when you're young, oh, okay. when you're young, you which is you what life. I got. Um, mm-hmm. And I had Mr. Quarry, Don Quarry, was uh, my high school English teacher for two years, and he also mentored me behind the scenes. So I would just go visit him like all the time. And at the time, I was writing poetry, and he really um, sort of inculcated me with the idea of show, don't tell. So I, I, you know, grew to write less sentimental poetry thanks to him, but also really clean work. He was a real fan of Hemingway and that clean writing. And I love that too. And then I learned later essays, you you do get to show a little, you tell a little in essays. It's actually really part, important part of it. But um, he was so important to me. And I was really thrilled to finally, it took me so long. I was like, oh my God, I hope he's still alive. And he is, he's alive and doing pretty well. And I had to like track down his wife. I happened to know like where she used to work and I found a way to email her And because I, I secretly wanted to get their mailing address so I could surprise him with this book. And I did, and he was thrilled. And he, he even told like a, a, another former student when they bumped into each other on the street. So that was so fulfilling.
0: That is, that's wonderful. Well, Linda, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yes, well, thank you for having me. It's been great fun.